This is Streaming Income, a podcast from Bearings, and I'm your host, Greg Campion. On this show, we intend to dig below the headlines to find out what's really going on in public and private asset markets around the world. From fixed income and equities to alternatives and real estate, we'll be speaking with Bearings experts from across the globe to get a glimpse into where they're seeing risks and opportunities today. If you like the show and want to hear more from us, please go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and search Streaming Income. Or visit us on bearings.com. That's B-A-R-I-N-G-S.com. On today's episode, my colleague, Dr. Christopher Smart, head of the Bearings Investment Institute, speaks with Bearings Matthew Ward and Colin Moore. Both London-based, Matthew and Colin are members of Bearings Global Equity Team, where they lead the firm's equity research and analysis of the technology sector. The duo recently co-authored a white paper for the Bearings Investment Institute titled, How Will Technological Disruption Strike Next? This conversation is far-reaching and helps shed light on why some companies innovate while others falter, which technologies may be on the cusp of taking off, and how investors and companies can potentially navigate an industry where the only constant seems to be change. To read the team's full white paper, please visit bearings.com and click on Institute. And with that, here is Dr. Christopher Smart. Colin, Matt, I'm delighted uh, to have you here and that the Institute was able to publish your paper, How Will Technology Disruption Strike Next? To me, reading through it, it's really a triple threat because it's informative, it's provocative, and by the way, it's actually useful for investors trying to think about this sector. So, Matt, let me start with you. Your central premise is around the dynamic of creative destruction in the sector, as Joseph Schumpeter described in a lot of his classic works on how economic forces destroy old firms in order to make room for new ones and for more innovative business models. But you actually build on this dynamic to sort of describe some of the disadvantages that the disruptor faces from competition snapping at its heels. Yeah, thanks, Christopher. I mean, he had a great quote, economic progress in capitalist society means turmoil. And I think that's something that we've seen over the last 20 years in the digital era quite markedly. Um, the most famous is probably Kodak and their 15-year journey from a $30 billion market cap company to being bankrupt 15 years after the launch of Casio's first digital camera. So we see that. I still have my old Instamatic. <laughs> it's probably worth more than it was 15 years ago. But yeah, there are, there are plenty of others that we reference in the paper, long-distance telephony, cable TV, um, that destruction process has been quite virulent in the last 20 years. In the paper, we go on to look at other works, notably Clayton Christensen, talking about disruptive innovation more broadly and how, on a more micro level, you're seeing companies innovate and develop their services and products, moving up the functional scale, iterating, and effectively creating an umbrella under which new competition can come in and disrupt them. And it's this cycle of innovation that, arguably we're seeing accelerating. And Clayton Christensen, of course, is the Harvard professor and author who has focused a lot on this particular dynamic. So, Colin, let me turn to you. The innovator's dilemma you described seems like something out of Catch-22. If you're first, that's great, but you're a pioneer for others to come behind you with even more cost-effective products. So this means that you have to keep innovating without disrupting the business model you developed the business model that accounts for your most profitable business lines. So what's the secret to staying relevant? I think if we take a look at history, 
which I think is very relevant in this case. And we look at companies like IBM and Oracle, for example, that you know have been very successful in, in recent times, but they started out as upstarts and as new entrants back in the day. And they were incredibly successful at, at starting with having very good products at the start and then growing out into, into more platform businesses and locking customers in uh, and making it very hard for them to go to other competition. And that lasted them a very, very long time indeed. So we would point to these companies today as the ones that are at threat from the technological disruption that we've been discussing. And so the companies today, what's different now is that, in particular, if you look at companies, for example, that are selling software out of the cloud or software as a service companies, one of the features of that business model is that you effectively sell a, a fairly standard product that you're only ever building new features for that single product and every customer has access to the same product. So there's very little, if not no, customization for that application. What that means is rather than focusing on maintaining lots of different versions of the software that your customers have maybe bought three, five years ago and then never bought the updated version, actually you've made sure that everyone's on the newest version. So you can innovate faster because all of your engineers are thinking about innovation and R&D, whereas the competition, the guys who've got 15 different versions of any one piece of software, they can't innovate as fast because they have to throw so much more R&D resource an engineering resource, it just made just standing still. They can never keep up. So this is the way that these new entrants are able to extend the period where actually they have a, a strong advantage and continue to grow. I think it's also instructive just to think about the exceptions to that, because there, there are always exceptions here. In this case, Microsoft, where you know clearly it, it grew up in the same sort of periods as particularly Oracle to become dominant, and it'd be very easy to define that as a sleepy incumbent that would lose over time. But what we've seen is partly through management changes and partly through just the way that history played out in terms of the, the regulation and the way that they mis-executed on mobile, um, they were forced to adopt the cloud in a very aggressive way. And, and they've actually taken that and transformed the company into much more of a cloud-first business where actually they're helping enable a lot of the, the new entrants and actually driving the disruption. They've adopted um, elements like artificial intelligence in a very aggressive way. And so to date, at least, we've not seen them cannibalize their traditional business. They've found a way to transition that business, um, the old office products in particular, and, and how Windows operating system operated into a world where the cloud is making them almost more relevant, and certainly in an enterprise world. And it's done wonders for the, the share price of the company. And you know, I think Sachin Adela, the CEO of that company, has to take a lot of credit for that. Matt, you also write about the speed of disruption because it often proceeds very slowly for a period of time and then delivers dramatic transformation all at once. Why is that? Well, it's interesting, actually. This was one of the, the starting points for actually pulling together some of the ideas that ended up in this paper. Con and I have been looking at the technology sector for coming on 40 years between us, and we're also both economists from background, and we've been wrestling with the fact that we're in this time of rapid technological change, which should be bringing great benefits to productivity, but actually labor productivity has been declining since around 2000 in the US and the late 2000s in emerging markets. So why aren't we seeing it coming through? It's a timing issue. And when we say a timing issue, it's almost a generational timing issue. It comes back really to the idea of creative destruction that we talked about earlier. A lot of the productive engines of the economy are built on legacy technology. And whilst it's relatively inefficient, that the new disruptive technology is exactly that. It's disruptive for everyone to adopt it, let alone for the incumbents that are facing it as competition. So we looked at historic examples, and probably the most obvious one is the electrification race, which started in the 1870s. 
But by 1900, only 5% of mechanical drive power was coming from electric motors. And one of the primary reasons for that was that actually the factories producing things had to fundamentally change their setups. The infrastructure had to change to be able to bring onto the production line smaller, more efficient electrical motors versus the steam engine. But whilst that took 20 years, once that process has happened, the change can be very rapid. Uh, In the piece, we referenced two very famous photos of Fifth Avenue in New York, one taken in 1900 showing the dominance of horse-drawn carts, but then a picture 13 years later in the same spot, you just see a sea of combustion engines. Uh, We would argue that we've been going through another phase of creative destruction, particularly with the rise of the public cloud, which is forcing a rethink of the entire architecture of enterprise software, for example, and that we're really laying the foundation for an acceleration of change. And those are really dramatic pictures that you have in the piece, and I try and picture New York in that period of time, or London or other cities, and how change feels like it's very slow and incremental, but then you realize if you go back five years or ten years how much things do really accelerate. Colin, it feels like to many of us that the tech sector has already delivered a lot of dramatic change, but you uh, argue that we're really on the cusp of a moment of great acceleration because things like the public cloud, mobile telephony, and a few other technologies are sort of lining up to transform a lot of different business models. If you start thinking about the consumer world, it might surprise you to know that e-commerce is only around 10 to 15% penetrated out of total retail sales in most markets around the world. I mean, you can break that down into categories in the US that have been around a little bit longer in terms of e-commerce, so things like music or video games. And if you look at those categories, when they reached 15% e-commerce penetration, that was a tipping point for acceleration of growth in the e-commerce sales of those categories. Um, so we would argue that where conditions are right, i.e. that there's a lack of incumbent competition, then you can have that um, acceleration or that tipping point reached even earlier. And another example of that would be China, where you could argue that the physical retail estate in China was relatively poor and certainly nothing like you would expect to find in the US or anywhere else in Europe. And the experience of shopping was nowhere near as enjoyable, for example. So the move to e-commerce in some ways was much easier because it was less pushback against consumer behavior and and habit, if you like. And China's penetration of e-commerce is now well over 20%. And so that leads us to the idea that there are tipping points where, say, one in five people or companies have adopted a particular solution as they are successful. So other people realize, well, I should be trying that as well. And then you get an accelerating point there is the mass market adopts these technologies or these solutions. So where, where it's really exciting for us looking forwards is thinking more about the enterprise world. So we think about the, the public cloud, for example, in uh, IBM's acquisition of Red Hat, one of the stats that they, they threw out is that the penetration of workloads moving to the cloud is in the range of, of 20%. I mean, people argue about this, but 20% seems like a, a reasonable number of certainly existing workloads that are out there. And we would expect to see acceleration from there. And this is after a period of very, very strong growth for the major public cloud companies. What is it about the public cloud and the availability of public cloud that is going to accelerate change from here? Part of it is quite simply cost. The ability for a company the size of Amazon Web Services to build a, a much more simplified infrastructure and then share that infrastructure across thousands and thousands of customers and they started with startups, and they've started to move up into, into much larger companies, whether it's GE or Goldman Sachs or companies like that, use that market share that they get to then push down the price of the hardware that they buy from companies that, that make servers, that make storage equipment or networking equipment, 
and then pass on those savings to their customers. And so they're able to offer very low unit costs of compute, of storage, and of networking to their customers. And that creates two things. One, it accelerates the desire to move workloads up into the cloud where you're, you're spending a lot of money in your own estate and running at very low utilization rates. And then secondly, it also lowers the cost of adoption, if you like. So part of the reason that startups leapt onto AWS in the early days was they could buy exactly what they needed rather than having to go out and spend many tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars on a server estate that they would maybe run at 15, 20% utilization, they can buy exactly what they need with a credit card. And so we see that as a very much a catalyst for innovation and letting entrepreneurs who've got a great idea and a little bit of financing from either friends or family or venture capital companies if they're lucky, and then really push what could be a very good idea out into the broader world. And all the stuff they really don't want to care about, which server they're using, how much bandwidth they have available, is the storage hard disk or is it flash memory? They really don't want to care about that. They want to care about the best product for their customers. Again, maybe we are hitting that tipping point of every company having so many workloads already in the cloud. Are you going to develop the next application in your on-premise environment or will you just put it in the cloud? And so you're seeing this natural migration after a big testing phase to the point that you will end up having almost a light switch moment of do we upgrade our own real estate or do we just go all in on the cloud? And I think you're just likely to see more people adopting that latter route. I think that's a great point and that builds out one of the ideas you have in the paper that divides investment opportunities in the tech space between firms that are building out that part of the infrastructure and firms that will come and test their business models on the foundation of that infrastructure. Yeah, I mean, we drew on some of the work of Stuart Brand, who had some great thoughts here around the different paces at which layers of society operate. At the one end, you have fashions, which almost by definition come and go with the seasons, all the way through to nature, which takes multiple generations to ruin, as we're currently attempting. But within the middle, there are infrastructure layers, governmental layers, cultural layers, and they all operate at different paces. And so at the very fast-moving end of the market, we see a lot of companies, particularly within our investment space of technology, that look a lot like fashion. It's the new shiny toy. If I think of Snap as an example of having ephemeral messaging and video content, which could very easily be copied by Facebook, and then on the other and hand... has been. And has been, and arguably stifled their growth, at least for a while. And then on the enterprise side of the market, you could think about cybersecurity, where a threat vector comes up, there's a solution to address it. A company becomes very big very quickly, but actually has a, a few-year life cycle naturally. And so you see these very, very fast-moving pools of opportunity. And the aim for a lot of these companies is either to exist in that layer of society and accept that you have to innovate and change very, very rapidly and adapt your culture and every, everything you do to succeed there, or to attempt to move into more of what is an infrastructure layer, which evolves more slowly. So we're seeing... On the one hand, it takes more time to adopt new infrastructure, but that infrastructure will last for a lot longer, aka the public cloud or social media platforms, something which effectively then creates a layer on which other fashion, for want of a better word, companies can operate on top of. And it's their innovation that arguably drives the continual innovation of the platform. And your job as one of those infrastructure platforms is effectively to manage the frictions between yourself, that you're not overcharging, you're offering value to your customers, and then the even slower moving paces of society, the governments and culture, which arguably is exactly what we're seeing, particularly in the US and Europe at the moment, in terms of the clash between large tech and politics. 
So looking at different investment opportunities, you would, at least at an initial cut, try and place it along that spectrum that you just described, Matt. Colin, what are some other elements that you look for in a successful tech business model? If we think about some of the the companies that have grown most rapidly in recent times, one of the common elements they've had is there's a free element to what they're doing. So they would effectively give away the product for free at a very basic level, and then people would learn to like the product but want to see more functionality, at which point the company would then sell them subscriptions to gold or platinum levels of features that really pull them up into being much more locked into the product. I mean, Dropbox is a good example of a company that started out as a effectively a consumer um, cloud storage business that's now trying to make itself an enterprise storage business, and it's adapted its business model accordingly, but the freemium approach is very much part of that. Evernote, Zoom Communications, there's lots of examples of companies who are using this as a way of effectively getting viral adoption within companies, and then that spreads, and as companies become more reliant on it, they have to pay more to actually use the greater features and the more enterprise-ready features. So freemium is, of course, uh, another introduction from the tech sector to the English language. What are some other points you would suggest we look at? The public cloud is very much central to a lot of these business models, the standardizing of the infrastructure, moving a lot of the value add of IT from the hardware into the software, which is great for the companies that are launching new software offerings that they no longer have to care so much about which brand of servers they use, which CPU processor they use. They just need to focus on the actual application. And so, again, this has fantastic benefits to the whole society in terms of accelerating innovation, lowering the the amount of risk that the entrepreneurs are effectively taking when they launch a new idea. So we think that if you can make use of the public cloud business model, that's a huge stepping stone to reducing a lot of the complexity of your business, your ability to scale the business, and you're raising the likelihood of your success significantly by going down that route. So let me take a step back because you two are dealing with, as we've been discussing, a part of our economy that is changing so very quickly that is changing the way businesses do business, the way we organize our own lives. Does the pace of technology and technological change, does that excite you or scare you or maybe a little bit of both, Matt? I think as technology investors, we're definitely on the excited camp. I mean, there there's a growing number of companies that are positively exposed now to the accelerating changes that we're seeing. And arguably, it's clearer to us anyway that the, the list of companies that are unlikely to succeed and therefore, it's from an investment pool of ideas, it's always nice to have some winners and some losers to pick from. So yeah, we're definitely on the excited camp. I think if we do think about where the fears would come in, it's it's very much thinking again about the, the Stuart Brand pace layering of society and, and which layers. The, the governance layer is important here because I think the, the challenges that we're all facing, understanding data privacy, understanding how best to regulate companies and particularly the sort of market powers that we're seeing of some of the internet companies who are very much in the focus today, we would be somewhat concerned about more clumsy regulation coming in. And it's all done out of an effort to protect the public and to force companies to fully recognize the value of the data that they hold and not allow them to abuse it. But we would worry that actually, as regulation quite often does, it tends to lock in the incumbent's market share. And I mean, Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg discussed this in his testimony to Congress where regulation is great and they agree that regulation should come through, but you need to see the other side of it, which is if you increase regulation, you increase the cost to new entrants from coming into that market. It's a really complicated space right now. And if you're a tech CEO, you are on the one hand 
running as fast as you can to be as innovative as possible and to stave off the competition. On the other hand, you have increasing concerns about privacy and antitrust regulation. We haven't even talked about all of the issues around national security, encryption, all of that set of dynamics that at least some tech CEOs will have to confront. What is it that you think are one or two of the most important questions when you go and meet a tech executive or CEO? What is it that you think are the most important questions to ask them? And what are good answers to those questions? I guess the starting point is it probably slightly depends on who you're asking. If we think of a company that has already started to take some form of dominance in their market and maybe moved into some form of platform or infrastructure dynamic, probably the starting point would be to see if they fully understand where their business sits in that cycle. Where are they in terms of addressing potentially a core business that might be slowing or subject to risk and how they would attempt to extend their business model to cover off more pain points for customers in order to increase the lock-in and also the love from their customers. So a lot of it is really the starting point of where is that company on their journey within disruption, within innovation. One of the other aspects we'd probably focus on with management is their roadmap for research and development, certainly in terms of the buckets, what things they're putting money to work in, and also the timescales at which they expect to see some form of return or some benefit to their customers and to their product sets. There's often a nice stage of growth where you put a lot of research and development dollars, you put a lot of upfront cost into developing a great product, and then it's great, and you go out and spend a load of money on sales and marketing people to go and sell it, and you see research and development stagnate. And I guess the concern is that you want to see unpick as much as possible that there is a roadmap, that there is a vision of where this company could get to in terms of extending their market or extending their reach within customers that actually starts to move them into a more defensible, higher barriers to exit, uh, lower costs, whatever it may be. It's those You're trying to see future points that are arguably three, five years out, well beyond the normal three to six month, are you going to beat or miss consensus earnings expectations? There's a lot of focus on those long-term drivers for us. I'd just add maybe one more point, and probably more on the, on the negative side, is it's always surprising how many of the companies, particularly the ones that have been around for a while and been very successful, really don't understand the threats that are coming at them from the the point products that have come out of the cloud that are that they look at and they see is, oh, there's not enough features there, they can't compete with us. We never see them in the big bake-offs for when we go into new customers. And actually, they miss the point of how these companies actually innovate and move up the value chain and, and just eat away at their core business, but from a, an oblique angle, not from where they expected at all. I mean, a great example is, is how Netflix effectively destroyed Blockbuster and then has gone after the, the movie studios and how the value chain has shifted in that industry by moving to a subscription model that come, that's delivered from the cloud and the way that Netflix went about securing content and then building their own content, which a lot of people weren't really ready for when it happened. But if you understood the business model and where they were coming from, actually made perfect sense. And so there's an awful lot of companies that we meet that just aren't ready for that sort of competition. We still have these conversations today and it's, it's always surprising, but at the same time, that's the opportunity for the new entrants to, to catch out the sleepy incumbents such as they are. Well, it sounds like we need to get the sleepy incumbents as well as the new entrants to read your paper to understand the dynamics at work. Well, listen, we only have a few minutes left, and I wanted to end on a lightning round. Just a few words from each of you, if you'll allow me. What piece of technology for you has been the most transformative in your daily routines? Matt? The first one that springs to mind is probably as sad as it sounds and as cliched as it sounds is probably the iPhone because it means I can 
effectively control my life. I can't remember the last time I left my phone more than five meters away from my body. So I think that's probably the hub to my life these days. But then at the same time, taking a, a cab over here today, I realized that contactless payments have become such a ubiquitous part of my life now that I don't remember a pin for anything really. Uh, so actually, frictionless payments is probably a worry for some people in terms of the amount they spend, but it's certainly a convenience factor in my life I couldn't live without anymore. Colin, what would you say? For me, the thing that really sticks in my mind is, is playing a, a Star Wars Battlefront game and the virtual reality level in one of the games where you could fly an X-Wing. It was mind-blowing to do it and great fun. But then applying what I do day to day to what that technology could actually do and you start thinking about how you could use it in advances in healthcare and surgery and using robots in extreme environments so you can have people remotely driving the robots and using the VR to help them visualize the environment. I mean, it's not imminent because the cost of it has been so high despite a lot of the best efforts of some companies like Facebook and Oculus. But it's something that will come and we'll see it in the consumer market first through gaming and these avenues. But you know, the, the industrial applications are coming. Well, it's nice to know you're always thinking about your job, even <laughs> if you're flying an X-Wing. So lastly, is there a tech breakthrough that you're most looking forward to over the next several years, Matt? I think probably the big one on the horizon is quantum computing. This is an area of technology that is going to address things that we couldn't address before. So whether it is from material science, from a healthcare perspective, this is where we could make some, dare I say it, quantum leaps in terms of humanity, in terms of making these big breakthroughs that we've been struggling against despite all the efforts for the last 20, 30, 40 years. Uh, so that would probably be the one I'd pick out. Listen, thanks to both of you. This is a fascinating conversation, a very interesting paper. You both spend a lot of time thinking through these issues, I think, in a very useful framework for a lot of us who are trying to keep up with the pace of change. So thanks for spending the time with us, and we look forward to tracking your work in the months and years ahead. Thanks, Christopher. Great, thank you. Thanks again for listening to today's show. If you have feedback or ideas on how we can improve it, we want to hear from you. Send us an email at podcast at bearings.com. That's podcast at B-A-R-I-N-G-S dot com. And if you'd like to stay up to date with our latest episodes, you can subscribe to the show by searching Streaming Income on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. While you're there, please take a moment to rate the show or leave us a review. They're all very much appreciated and they make the show easier for others to find. Thanks again for listening.